Welcome to God's Messenger Lighthouse Podcast. This is your host, Brother Scott Messenger, bringing you Chapter 3 from the book, Jacob DeShazer, Forgive Your Enemies, written by Janet and Jeff Binge, part of the book series, Christian Heroes, Then and Now, by YWAM Publishing. Chapter 3, Secret Mission. Jake sat on an upturned bucket peeling potatoes and then tossing them into a bowl of cold water. It was December 7, 1941, and there was a chill in the morning air at March Field, just outside Los Angeles. The base was like so many others that Jake had passed through since being assigned to the Army Air Corps' 17th Bombardment Group almost two years before. Jake was enjoying a joke with a fellow potato peeler when the loudspeaker system crackled to life. Attention! A voice said in a tone that Jake thought more fitting for a funeral than a base-wide announcement. We have just received word that the United States fleet stationed at Pearl Harbor has been attacked by the Japanese. Significant damage and loss of life has been reported. I repeat, we have just received word that the United States fleet stationed at Pearl Harbor has been attacked by the Japanese. Stand by for further information. Stunned, Jake felt a whole host of emotions rising within him. Those Japanese are going to pay for this, he yelled. All around him, uniformed men were also shouting. The scene depicted a combination of frustration and anger. The Japanese military, under the control of the emperor, had dared to attack an American fleet in American waters. What would be next? Over the next several days, more details of the attack and the full damage the Japanese had inflicted at Pearl Harbor were revealed. The attack had come in two waves. The first consisted of 189 Japanese aircraft, followed by another wave of 171 airplanes. When the attack was over, eight American battleships, three destroyers, and three cruisers had been sunk or severely damaged. As well, 188 aircraft were destroyed, 2,403 people had been killed, and another 1,178 were wounded. The Japanese losses during the attack had been minimal. 23 or 29 Japanese uh, aircraft had been shot down, 5 midget submarines had been sunk, and 65 Japanese sailors and airmen had been killed or wounded. In addition, on the same day they attacked Pearl Harbor, the Japanese won battles in the Philippines, Wake Island, Guam, Midway Island, Malaya, Thailand, and Shanghai. The attacks galvanized the United States into action, and the following day, December 8, 1941, the United States and Britain declared war on Japan. America could no longer claim that the war was over there in Europe, Japan had delivered war to the country's doorstep. As the United States entered the Second World War, Jake was not happy with the results as he watched the Japanese gain the upper hand in the Pacific region. Between the attack on Pearl Harbor and New Year's Day 1942, the Japanese bombed Manila and invaded the Philippines. They also seized the island of Guam and invaded Burma. British Borneo, and Hong Kong. The Japanese seemed to be winning every battle they entered 
and were becoming more emboldened with each passing day. Millions of Americans agreed with President Franklin D. Roosevelt that something monumental had to be done to stem Japanese aggression. The question was, what? It was impossible to strike Japan itself, since the Japanese occupied all of the land within airstriking distance of their island nation, and aircraft carrier would have to be within 300 miles of Japan to launch a direct airstrike on the country, and there was no way that the Japanese Navy was going to let any American warships get that close. To make matters even worse, the Germans had launched an offensive against American ships that US, so that U.S. ships were being attacked in both the Pacific and the Atlantic Oceans. The American public was kept in the dark about most of the German U-boat attacks against civilian ships and their American naval escorts, but word of these attacks filtered through to the men in uniform. With each enemy attack, Jake grew angrier and more grateful that he had trained to be both an aircraft mechanic and a bombarder, a direct way for him to make a mark on the war. By the end of January 1942, Jake had moved on from California. This time, he had been assigned to an airbase in Columbia, South Carolina. One morning, soon after arriving at his new posting, <clears throat> Jake was checking on a plane's mechanical release arm when a fellow soldier informed him that he was to report to the captain. As Jake walked across the tarmac, he searched his mind for anything that he had done wrong lately that would cause the captain to want to see him. He'd been to a few bars and dance halls, but he had done nothing out of the usual. He was a shy man and did not attract as much attention as some of the other men. Still, his heart skipped a beat as he stepped into the captain's office. To Jake's surprise, 15 or 20 other airmen already were inside the captain's office. Jake inched his way inside the door and scanned the men quickly to see whether he could figure out what they might all have in common, but nothing came to him. The captain appeared to be waiting for Jake to arrive before he began. Men, there's no way to lead up to this and no way to put a fine point on it. I have just been informed that we have a very dangerous mission coming up and we need volunteers. The captain paused and looked around the room. That's about all I can tell you. As I said, it's volunteers, so if you don't want to step up, that's fine with me. Where's the mission going? One airman asked. How long will we be away? Another inquired. How many of us are needed? Does this come from the top, or is it a local operation? questions poured out until the captain lifted his hands. Men, I've told you all I can. In fact, more than that, I've told you all I know. This mission has the highest rating for secrecy that the army gives. You might not know one more thing until you are underway. Jake stood quick, quietly, watching the situation unfold before him. The men asked a few more questions, but got the same answer. The assignment was top secret, and the captain had already told them everything he knew. Well, men, let's have a show of hands, the 
captain concluded. I'll go around the room, and you raise your hand if you're in. Captain began with the airman nearest his desk, which meant that Jake would be the last person in the room to be reached. As the captain's eyes fell on each airman in the room, the men raised their hands until it was Jake's turn. Jake's stomach nodded. He wanted to walk out the door. He did not need to be a hero, uh, not if there was the possibility that it would cost him his life. But every other man in the room had raised his hand, and Jake was too embarrassed to be the only standout. He raised his hand, for better or for worse. He knew that his life was about to be turned upside down. Within a week, the men who had been at the meeting, along with about 120 others, were flying into Iglon Field in the panhandle of Florida. The men still did not know any more about the mission than when they'd volunteered, but it didn't take long before they began to put a few pieces of the puzzle together. The men were divided into 24 crews, each crew consisting of a pilot, a co-pilot, a navigator, a bombarder, and a gunner engineer. Jake liked the crew he was assigned to. Even though he was only 29 years old, the other members made him feel like the old man of the group. The next oldest member of the crew was the navigator, 25-year-old Lieutenant George Barr, followed by the 23-year-old pilot Lieutenant William Farrow, the 22-year-old co-pilot Lieutenant Robert Ahitti, and the 20-year-old Sergeant Harold Spatz, gunner, engineer. The remainder of the men in the room who had not been assigned to a crew were told that they would be ground personnel for the mission. On March 3, 1942, the men who had volunteered for the secret mission were called together in a briefing room at England Field. Jake huddled in with the rest of the men. Moments later, the door to the briefing room swung open, and in strode a short, middle-aged man with a cleft chin and receding hairline. Jake could see that the man wore the insignia of the rank of lieutenant colonel. The room went quiet as the man walked to the podium at the front. My name is Doolittle, he said. So this is the famous Jimmy Doolittle, Jake thought. He had heard much about Doolittle's legendary flying achievements, but this was the first time he had ever seen the man in person. Doolittle had set all kinds of flight speed records, and in 1922 he had set a record flying from Florida to San Diego, California in 21 hours, 19 minutes, making one stop to refuel in Texas. Doolittle also had pioneered the development and deployment of instruments in aircraft. In 1929, he became the first pilot to take off, fly, and land blind, that is, using only his instruments and not his eyesight to guide him. I've been put in charge of the project you men have volunteered for, Doolittle continued. It's a tough mission and will be the most dangerous thing most of you will have ever done. Any man can drop out now if he wants to, and nothing will ever be said about it. Nobody in the room took up the colonel's offer to walk away. Finally, a boyish-looking lieutenant raised his hand. 
Jimmy Doolittle signaled for the young man to speak. Sir, can you give us any more information about the mission? The lieutenant asked. I'm sorry, I can't do that right now, Doolittle replied, shaking his head. The lieutenant colonel then went on to explain how important secrecy was to the mission. He urged the men not to speculate among themselves as to what the mission might be, and they were to tell no one, not even their wives and girlfriends, about what they were up to. If anyone outside the military got too nosy or asked too many questions about what the men were doing, they were to report to the name of that person. Or they were to report the name of that person to their commanding officer, so that the FBI could be called in to investigate the person. Jimmy Doolittle then went on to explain the importance of teamwork on the mission. The five-man crews were to train until they flowed together as a tight, cohesive unit. The pilots were to concentrate on getting their aircraft off the ground in the shortest distance with the heaviest load. The aircraft the crews would be flying on the mission was the Mitchell B-25 bomber. Each crew was assigned to a bomber and was told they could name the plane if they wanted to. Jake and his crew settled on Bat Out of Hell as the name of their plane, while others chose names like Whirling Devilish and Ruptured Duck. Uh, it did not take long for the crews to notice that all the all sorts of modifications had been made to their B-25s. Uh, they these changes provided some clues as to what Special Aviation Project Number One, as the secret mission had now been dubbed, might entail. For one, the bombers had extra rubber fuel tanks installed inside them that extended the fuel capacity of the plane from 646 gallons to 1,141 gallons. One of the extra fuel tanks was installed in the bomb bay. As a result, new shackles had been installed in the bomb bay to hold the bombs. The lower gun turret had been removed to make room for another gas tank. As well, some improvements had been made to the aircraft's remaining gun turrets. To Jake's surprise, two broom handles painted black now protruded from the back of the tail to give the illusion that the plane had more firepower than it actually did actually had the icing equipment had also been fitted to the leading edges of the wings and tail surfaces the airmen's flight training in the modified b-25s offered more clues to their mission at a remote airfield the pilots practiced taking off in the shortest distance possible within the white outline of an aircraft carrier flight deck painted on the runway under the tutelage of Lieutenant Hank Miller, a Navy aviator who had been brought in from nearby Pensacola Naval Air Station to train the Army pilots in the fundamentals of short takeoffs. The pilots were soon getting their fully loaded bombers off the ground in less than 500 feet. The pilots also practiced flying low over both land and water and then uh, climbing to 1,500 feet to drop their bombs. The pilots were told to collaborate their instruments precisely 
and work out fuel efficient settings for their engines. Meanwhile, the rest of the men on the crew learned how to perform the duties on the other members of the crew so that they could take over if something happened to one of the crewmen on the mission. During the training period, two of the bombers and their crews were eliminated from the mission because of poor performance, leaving the total number of planes and crews for the mission at 22. Throughout this time, the men, including Jake, couldn't resist trying to speculate as to what their secret mission might be. The Germans were continuing their onslaught against Allied merchant and naval ships in the Atlantic Ocean. Some men thought that their secret mission might be to help France get stranded airplanes off the Caribbean island of um, Martinique. Uh, still others speculated that they might be dispatched to pr uh, protect the Panama Canal or to patrol the Aleutian Islands off the west coast of Alaska. It was all speculation, yet the men knew that it was only a matter of time before they would learn the specifics of the mission they had volunteered for. Then, on the morning of March 23, 1942, three and a half months after the United States had declared war on Japan, Lieutenant Colonel Jimmy Doolittle addressed the men. Today is the day we move out, he began. We are headed for McLennan Field outside of Sacramento, California, to be exact. File your flight plans. I'll see you there. Next time, Chapter 4, This Ship is Bound for Tokyo. And you can find this book at this website at www.ywampublishing.com and their phone number is 800-922-2143 and again that's www.ywampublishing.com and the book is written by Janet and Jeff Benj and this is Jacob DeShazer Forgive Your Enemies part of the book series Christian Heroes Then and Now next time chapter 4 this ship is bound for Tokyo.